I mentioned earlier, there's an outline in the bulletin. You can track along with the message this morning. Our passage is Jeremiah 7. We haven't read that yet, and so that's how we'll begin. If you'll take your copy of the scriptures and find Jeremiah chapter 7, we'll begin in verse 1. We'll read all the way to verse 20. Jeremiah 7, 1. It's the word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord. Stand in the gate of the Lord's house and proclaim there this word. And say, hear the word of the Lord, all you men of Judah who enter these gates to worship the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, amend your ways and your deeds and I will let you dwell in this place. Do not trust in these deceptive words. This is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. For if you truly amend your ways and your deeds, if you truly execute justice one with another, if you do not oppress the sojourner, the fatherless, or the widow, or shed innocent blood in this place, and if you do not go after other gods to your own harm, then I will let you dwell in this place, in the land that I gave of old to your fathers forever. Behold, you trust in deceptive words to no avail. Will you steal, murder, commit adultery, swear falsely, make offerings to Baal, and go after other gods that you have not known, and then come and stand before me in this house, which is called by my name, and say, we're delivered, only to go on doing all these abominations? Has this house, which is called by my name, become a den of robbers in your eyes? Behold, I myself have seen it, declares the Lord. Now go to my place that was in Shiloh, where I made my name dwell at first, and see what I did to it because of the evil of my people Israel. And now, because you have done all these things, declares the Lord, and when I spoke to you persistently, you did not listen, and when I called you, you did not answer. Therefore, I will do to the house that is called by my name and in which you trust, and to the place that I gave to you and to your fathers, as I did to Shiloh. I will cast you out of my sight, as I cast out all your kinsmen, all the offspring of Ephraim. As for you... Do not pray for this people or lift up a cry or prayer for them and do not intercede with me for I will not hear you. Do you not see what they are doing in the cities of Judah and in the streets of Jerusalem? The children gather wood, the fathers kindle fire, the women need dough to make cakes for the queen of heaven. They pour out drink offerings to other gods to provoke me to anger. Is it I whom they provoke, declares the Lord? Is it not themselves to their own shame? Therefore, thus says the Lord God, behold, my anger and my wrath will be poured out on this place upon man and beast, upon the trees of the field and the fruit of the ground. It will burn and not be quenched. Every week, as we have been working through the book of Jeremiah, these few weeks, we've talked about the word of the Lord, that phrase, the word of the Lord. It shows up at the beginning of this passage, Jeremiah chapter 7, verse 1 and 2. The Lord sent Jeremiah 
to speak the word of the Lord, and he sent him to speak it at the entrance of the temple in Jerusalem. Now, none of us have ever visited the temple in Jerusalem. You may have visited Jerusalem, but you haven't visited the temple in Jerusalem. And so just to be clear, if you were to go to this spot in Jeremiah's day, it was not a place where sermons were normally delivered. In fact, it would have been quite unusual to be in that place and to hear a sermon delivered. And so when Jeremiah showed up to declare the word of the Lord in that place at that time, it would be a little bit like, just to give you a sense of this, imagine it's Christmas Eve. You're excited to celebrate Christmas Eve with your family. You're coming to Emmanuel for a Christmas Eve service. You walk in the door and somebody hands you a candle and you're excited for what's about to happen. But right in the middle of the lobby, Corey is screaming at the top of his lungs, amend your ways or I will kick you out of Odessa, Texas. Would not be the normal place to hear a sermon. You might be used to Corey screaming, but not in the lobby as you come in for Christmas Eve worship. That would have been the feel as Jeremiah stood in the, the gate of the temple, the courts of the temple, and proclaimed this message on God's behalf. This passage, Jeremiah 7, is known as Jeremiah's temple sermon, obviously because that's where he was when he delivered it. There's a connection in the book of Jeremiah between what we're reading in chapter 7 and what you'll find in Jeremiah 26. They're both sermons. The content is very similar, and they were both delivered in the temple. Now, some Bible scholars read some this week. They say this is the same sermon. He preached it one time, and it is recounted twice in the book of Jeremiah. That wouldn't be unusual in the Bible. Paul, Saul, was converted once, and his conversion is told three times in the book of Acts. So maybe Jeremiah preached this sermon one time, and it's mentioned twice in the book. Other Bible scholars say, no, he actually preached it twice. He preached it once during the reign of Josiah, once during the reign of Jehoiakim. Other people say, no, he only preached it once, but it was one or the other. And it's a little bit muddy on how many times did he preach this sermon. That leads me to say this. We're not really sure if he preached it during the reign of Josiah or maybe during the reign of Jehoiakim or maybe once during the reign of each king. Either way, however you cut this knot, the main point of the sermon is the same. The application might just be a little bit different. Take Josiah, for example. Josiah was a good king. And if this sermon, the one that we just read, were to be preached during the day of Josiah, the point might be removing institutional evil doesn't automatically make people good. You remember Josiah was a good king who led a great revival in Judah. He got rid of the, the shrines and the, the cultic high places and all of the idolatrous nonsense going on in the temple. He cleaned all of that out. He outlawed idolatry. He did some great things in Judah. And if it was preached... In Josiah's day, the point may be, look, you people, amend your ways. Just changing the external laws of a nation doesn't mean that you've changed anybody's heart. And what God wants is not just institutional change. He wants heart change among his people. It's also possible that this sermon was preached during the reign of Jehoiakim, who was a wicked king. He basically undid everything that Josiah put in place. And if it was preached during the day of Jehoiakim, we might say, you know, God really cares more about lasting discipleship than temporary decisions. I mean, all these great things happened during the time of Josiah. They were systematically undone 
during the reigns of the kings who came after Josiah. And maybe what Jeremiah is saying to the people is, look, Jeremiah, um, excuse me, Josiah's day was great, but it didn't last. It wasn't real. It was just an external band-aid on the cancer of this nation. And what God really wants is internal heart change among his people. Whichever king you think was on the throne when this sermon was preached, whatever the, the popular religion of the day is, the big idea of this sermon is really, really clear. The Lord hates, and I know that that's a strong word, the Lord hates phony, hypocritical religion. He hates it. That's what was going on in Jeremiah's day. Whether he preached this sermon once or twice or who was on the throne, he looked around and he saw phony, hypocritical religion. When I put this message together, I thought that's the big idea I came up with it. I, I found myself thinking, I wish I could state that a little more positively. And that's kind of a downer. That's just kind of negative. It's just kind of... Maybe we could say that what God really wants from his people is genuine, lasting heart change. And I almost went with that as the big idea. The problem is, in Jeremiah's sermon, he doesn't put a positive spin on it. He just says negatively what he sees. And what he says in this sermon is that God hates phony, hypocritical religion. Now, if that's true, and if God is the same yesterday, today, and forever, he doesn't change, you and I need to know what phony, hypocritical religion looks like. We need to understand what did it look like in Jeremiah's day and what might it look like in our own day. If this is something that God, the Lord God, does not like, something that he hates, we want to steer clear of it. And so I want you to see five signs of phony, hypocritical religion. We'll talk about these in Jeremiah's day, and then we'll think about what it might look like in our day. Number one, phony, hypocritical religion. One sign is that you focus on religious ritual. Religious ritual. Just going through the motions. These people who heard this sermon were people who were going to worship. These people weren't sleeping in, skipping church. These people weren't even on their way to a pagan shrine. These people weren't headed out to the high place. They were headed to the temple. Verse 1 and 2 and 3 says that they were going to the temple to worship the Lord. They were going through all the right external things. They were going to the right place at the right time for the right reason, but they weren't right with the Lord on a heart level. It was all external religious ritual observance and there was no real heart change to it. You understand that that can happen today. Here you are in a worship service on a Sunday morning with the people of God. You're in the right place at the right time. You're doing the right thing. But I know and you know that some of us are just going through the motions. It's just something that we're doing. It's not really resonating on a heart level at all. God hates that kind of religion. It's phony. It's hypocritical. Focusing on religious ritual, sign one. Sign two, relying on religious cliches. Religious cliches. Just sort of little churchy phrases that we say to make ourselves feel better. We didn't invent that. People in the Bible Belt do it all the time, but it was going on in Jeremiah's day. Look what the people were saying in verse four. 
Jeremiah said, do not trust in these deceptive words. This is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. Fascinating that he repeated it three times. I think he repeated it three times because the people were probably repeating it like a mantra. Sort of like professional wrestling. How many of you like professional wrestling? When I was little and I used to watch professional wrestling, I don't think you can do this anymore, but there was always a villain from another country, right? There was some bad guy, the Iron Sheik or some Russian guy or some bad communist or whatever, and they would come out waving the flag of their country, and then here would be Hacksaw Jim Duggan with his two-by-four and his American flag, and the crowd would instinctively just start chanting, USA. USA. And we just drown out the bad guy. We don't want to hear what you have to say at all. I think something similar was happening in Jeremiah's day. These people knew what Jeremiah had to say. What Jeremiah had to say is you are sinful, wicked people, and the Lord is going to kick you out of this land. And when Jeremiah would get his sermon going, the congregation, as it were, I think would just start in with this chant. This is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, and it would build and it would get louder and they would just drown him out. Why would they say that? They had a firm belief in Jeremiah's day that the city of Jerusalem would never, never be conquered. They had watched the nation of Assyria march on their neighbors to the north in Samaria, the northern kingdom of Israel. They watched the Assyrians decimate the northern kingdom. And then they watched the Assyrians march on their own nation when Hezekiah was king. And they saw, you can go back and read about it, one of the most amazing, miraculous, glorious miracles that has ever happened on the face of the earth. And God saved his people in Jerusalem. And they developed this idea that because the temple was there in Jerusalem, that God would never never allow their city to be conquered. And they just repeated it like a mantra. The temple of the Lord. Jeremiah, we don't want to hear it. The temple of the Lord. The temple of the Lord. The temple of the Lord. We are not listening to you, Jeremiah. The temple is here. The temple of the Lord. They said things like, if you look down in verse 10, we're delivered. Jeremiah, do you not remember the deliverance that happened back then? We're delivered. It's the temple of the Lord, and they just repeated it. Jeremiah says in verse 4 that these are deceptive words. Verse 8, do not trust in deceptive words. You're trusting in deceptive words to no avail. You're saying things that are true. Was that the temple of the Lord? Yes, it was. Had God delivered his people? Yes, he had. But it was just empty religious cliche. People today wouldn't do anything like that, would they? I mean, people today wouldn't put a a bumper sticker or, you know, a symbol on the back of their car and somehow feel like they're now good, right? People today wouldn't go around saying, hey, I got saved in fifth grade at church camp. I walked down front. I prayed a prayer. They baptized me in the swimming pool. I know I hadn't been back to church in the last 30 years, but, hey, I got saved. I got saved. People wouldn't say, oh, yeah, I'm a, I'm a Christian. I'm a member at such and such Baptist church or such and such not Baptist church. And they wouldn't rely on their, their supposed membership at a church, would they? I mean, people say to me somewhat regularly when I'm talking with somebody who is not a practicing Christian, 
I'm not active in a local church. People will look at me in the eye and they'll use this cliche. You know, I've read the Bible cover to cover. I usually want to say, you're a liar. I usually don't say that. I usually just think, so what? So what? I've read lots of books cover to cover. What, did, what in the world does that mean? What, what is that? You're saying that to me like it's supposed to mean something. What, what does that mean? It's just empty religious cliche. We do it all the time in the Bible Belt. We trust in these empty religious cliches. Many of them aren't even remotely biblical, but we convince ourselves that we are, and we say, oh, yeah, it's in the Bible somewhere, probably in Proverbs. I don't know. It's just empty cliche. It's phony, hypocritical religion. The Lord hates it. Thirdly, disregard for God's commands. This is verse 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10. This is where Jeremiah, you might say, goes from preaching to meddling in people's lives because he gets real specific and he just starts calling out individual sins one right after another. It's almost like he's looking at the Ten Commandments on a wall and he's just checking them all off. This is how Eugene Peterson describes these verses, 5 to 10. He says, their religious performance was impeccable. That's the ritual. Their everyday life was rotten. Just... Look at what I'm going to put on the screen. These are all things that Jeremiah mentions. These are the Ten Commandments sort of rephrased in short form. No other gods and don't worship idols. Well, they were doing both of those things. Jeremiah specifically mentions it. Do not take God's name in vain and keep the Sabbath day holy. Well, they were breaking both of those. Even as they went to the temple on the Sabbath and sang all the songs and did all the stuff and offered all the sacrifices, it was totally blasphemous because they're living differently the rest of the week. Your father and your mother, the the forefathers of these people are mentioned in verse 7. I gave this land to your forefathers. I had a relationship with them. You are dishonoring them in the way that you live. He mentions murder specifically, adultery specifically, stealing specifically, lying specifically. And you come down to the 10th and you say, I didn't read anything about coveting. Let me just assure you, by the time a person breaks one through nine, you have broken 10. They're all there. They thought as long as we go to the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord on the right day at the right time and do the right thing with the right people, it'll be good. And Jeremiah says, that's just empty religious ritual. You're trusting in religious cliche and you are living with total disregard for the commandments of God. Fourthly, they're chasing false gods. Obviously, that's implied in what we just said, but it's worth singling out. Look at verse 6. Jeremiah says, you're going after other gods, little g gods. This is to your own harm, by the way. This is hurting you. We talked about this last week. We become like what we worship. When you worship something that is false and alive, that's what you become. Look what he says in verse 8. It says, you're trusting in these deceptive words to no avail. Verse 9, he says, you are making offerings to Baal, the Canaanite rain god. You are worshiping him. You're offering sacrifices to him in the hopes that he'll send rain on your crops. Sacrifices to Baal. Look what he says down in verse, oh, talks about the queen of heaven. 
the queen of heaven. Down in verse 16 and 17, you see what they're doing in the streets, out in the open? The children gather the wood, the fathers kindle, kindle the fire, and the women need dough. Why are they doing this? Why is the whole family involved in getting the sticks and making the fire and baking the cake? The answer is they are offering a sacrifice to the queen of heaven. This was the queen of heaven. It was at least one depiction of her. She was the Canaanite fertility goddess. The earliest Canaanites, the people in Mesopotamia, called her Ishtar. Sometimes the idea of Ishtar morphed into Astarte. Sometimes it morphed into Ashtoreth. Sometimes this goddess, this deity, morphed into what you read about in the pages of the Old Testament, Asherah. And they were just worshiping her out in the open. First, let's go to the temple, offer our sacrifices, recite the prayers, do the thing. And then, don't forget, son, daughter, get the sticks. Dad, you got to make the fire. I'll make the biscuits, and we'll offer them to this fertility goddess. Jeremiah says, you are chasing other gods, even as you profess to worship the Lord. Today, in Odessa, Texas, people wouldn't do that, would they? I mean, I'll be honest with you, I have never seen a family out gathering sticks in Odessa. It'd be hard to do. If I did, I've never stumbled across a family who said, oh, well, what we're doing is we're starting a campfire in the front yard so that we can make some biscuits, make some bread, make a loaf of this so that we can offer it to the fertility goddess. I've never seen anybody do that. People would never do this, right? We're far past chasing other gods. I mean, people in Odessa, Texas, would never go to church on Sunday morning and profess sole allegiance to Jesus Christ only to live the rest of the week as if their children or grandchildren were the center of the universe, would they? People would not do that. People would never come to church and sing all the songs and fill in all the sermon blanks only to live their life truly six days a week or maybe like seven and seven-eighths days of the week, six and seven-eighths days of the week. They'd never leave church and pursue career, money, fame, approval of man, education, pleasure, self. People would never do that, right? Jeremiah, Jeremiah may not drop in on us and say, look at you people chasing Ishtar with your sacrifices. But I imagine if he dropped in and spent some time with us, he would say, look at you people. You've never missed a blank on the sermon outline and yet you chase all sorts of little G gods, false gods in your life. This is phony. Jeremiah says it's hypocritical. Lastly, this one is shocking. He says a sign of phony hypocritical religion is that you have forgotten the judgments of God. Jeremiah says to the people in verse 12 to 15, go to Shiloh. Go to Shiloh. Remember the stories in the Old Testament about the Exodus? Remember God sent Moses to bring the people out and they, all the plagues and the, the miracles and they passed through the Red Sea and they got out in the wilderness and God said, I'm gonna be with you, I'm gonna live with you, but you're gonna need to build a tent for me and I'll go with you in the tent. Remember they built the tabernacle? And remember the glory of the Lord 
descended on that tabernacle and a, a pillar of smoke by day and a pillar of fire by night. I mean, God lived right there in the midst of his people and he talked with his people. You remember all that? And they're wandering around in the wilderness and they finally, after 40 years, they get to go into the promised land. And when they get into the promised land, they're no longer wandering around like nomads. They inherit cities. So there's no need to haul this tabernacle around anymore. Do you know where they put it? Shiloh. They just put it in Shiloh and they left it there. And just like the people, the priests running the tabernacle quickly deteriorated into a downward spiral of idolatry. Ended up with a man named Eli in charge. He was more of a mob boss than a priest. And the Lord was so angry with what was going on at Shiloh that he allowed the Philistines to march into Shiloh, destroy the tabernacle, and take the Ark of the Covenant into Philistine territory. If Jeremiah's audience actually did what he dared them to do, go to Shiloh, do you know what they would have found? No Ark, no tabernacle rubble. It was ruins, burned over by the Philistines. Jeremiah says, you want to chant to me about the temple of the Lord? Have you ever been to Shiloh? Have you seen that burned over mound of rocks? Have you, do you remember what God did? If he did it then, why in the world would he not do it now? Verse 15, he says, what about the people of Ephraim? Why don't you take a family vacation and visit your cousins in a frame. Oh, that's right. They've been exiled from the land, kicked out of Israel, and taken to Assyria. Jeremiah says, you have completely forgotten the judgments of God. People wouldn't do this today, would they? People wouldn't today feel safe and secure that we live in the United States, the greatest nation that's ever existed on the face of the planet, God's chosen prosperous nation. People wouldn't have this false hope, would they? People wouldn't say, well, at least we don't live in New York. We live down in the South. I mean, fire and brimstone may fall up there, but it will never fall down here. We live in Texas. Are you kidding me? It's the greatest state in the whole world. It's the Republic. People would never say, we live in Odessa. It's the greatest city in Texas. Judgment will never fall here. We go to Emmanuel. They have the best preacher you've ever heard. <laughs> judgment will... I mean, people wouldn't say that kind of thing, would they? We wouldn't forget the judgments of God. Well, why don't you go to Shiloh? Look at the rocks. Why don't you go to Ephraim? Visit the people of Ephraim. They're not there. Why don't you go to the temple where Jeremiah preached this sermon? Guess what? It's not there. There's a mount, a temple mount, but what's standing there is a... Islamic mosque. Come with me to Western Europe and let's visit the cathedrals. They're massive. They're unbelievably huge. They didn't build these cathedrals to be museum. They built these cathedrals to house the thousands and thousands and thousands of people who were attending worship. Where are they now? They're empty. They're completely empty. 
Come with me to New England and let's visit the campus of university after university after university founded to teach men and women the word of God and to prepare ministers for the preaching of the gospel that now spew the most godless pagan gobbledygook you can imagine. You don't think God's judgment could fall here? It's fallen all over the place at many different times. You can go to Shiloh. You can go to Ephraim. You can go to the empty tabernacles of Western Europe. You can go to the the institutes of higher education that have the name of Jesus etched in the stone that will literally kick you off the campus for talking about Jesus. Jeremiah says, you have completely forgotten the judgments of God. The question is, how did God respond to these people? What did he do? I want you to see two answers. Number one, God's initial answer. His initial answer was pouring out his wrath on Judah in the Babylonian exile. Look at verse 16. It's such a tragic verse. God speaks to Jeremiah. He's been telling him, say this, say this, say this, say this. Verse 16, as for you, Jeremiah, that's a singular you. You, Jeremiah, do not pray for this people. He could have ended the sentence right there. Don't pray for this people. But then he says this, don't pray for this people or, number two, lift up a cry or a prayer for them. Could have ended the sentence there, but he goes on and he says it a third time, and do not intercede with me, for I will not hear you. He tells him three times, Jeremiah, do not pray for these people. Do not, do not, do not. You know, when the Hebrews came out of Egypt and they made that golden calf, it was Moses, the prophet, who prayed for them and interceded for them. And the judgment of God was restrained. When the 12 tribes came into the land and they decided collectively that they no longer wanted to have judges, they wanted to have a king like all the other nations and they rejected the Lord from being their king, it was the prophet Samuel who prayed for them. He interceded for them. When the nation of Assyria destroyed the northern kingdom of Israel and marched on Jerusalem, it was the king Hezekiah who went to the prophet Isaiah and said, Isaiah, we need you to pray for us. The prophet interceded for the people. And now God himself, the Lord God, says to Jeremiah, don't do it. This is going to happen. I am going to send these people into exile. And it did happen. And they kept clinging to their little catchphrases and they kept going through the routine of religion and they kept chanting the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, right up to the moment when the temple of the Lord was flattened by the Babylonians. And they were hauled off into exile. It was the wrath of God poured out on these people, just like Jeremiah said. It's not the only thing that God did. There's a second answer here. How did the Lord respond to the phony hypocritical religion of the people? Eventually, the Lord poured out his wrath on Jesus at the cross. Look at verse 20. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, behold, my anger and wrath will be poured out on this place. It will burn and not be quenched. Jeremiah said those words in roughly 610 B.C. 
610 B.C., standing in the temple. He preached this sermon. Do you know that about 650 years later, a carpenter from Nazareth named Jesus stood in the same place and he quoted Jeremiah 7.11. He looked at the Pharisees and he looked at the scribes and he looked at the Sadducees and he said, this place has become a den of thieves and you're the problem. Jesus said, you're a bunch of hypocrites. You're a bunch of phonies. You're like whitewashed tombs. On the outside, you look great, but on the inside, you're full of dead men's bones. You're like the the teenager who does the dishes and they clean the outside of the cup, but the inside is nasty. What good is that? He rebuked them. He quoted Jeremiah. And then he did something that Jeremiah was told not to do. He prayed, and he interceded for God's people. Not that long ago on a Sunday morning, we talked about that prayer. John chapter 17, Jesus' high priestly prayer. He prayed for his disciples, and he prayed for all of those who would believe in subsequent generations. He prayed for you and me. He interceded for us. Not only did he intercede in that high priestly prayer in the upper room, but he left the upper room and went to a place called Gethsemane, and he prayed. He prayed on our behalf. Look what he said, Matthew 26. He said, Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. That word cup is lifted straight out of Jeremiah and Isaiah and Ezekiel. It's the cup of God's wrath. And knowing what was ahead of him at the cross, he says, Father, if it is possible, let it pass. But if it's not, your will be done, and I will drink it to the very last drop. And that's exactly what happened on the cross. The Son of God drank the cup of God's wrath. He died for our sins. He died. We sang about it just a moment ago in Christ alone. He died on the cross to satisfy the wrath of God that should have fallen on us. Listen. The Bible is clear about this. There is one God. He existed in the beginning. He made everything. He was alive in Jeremiah's day, and he is alive today. The Bible says he is absolutely holy. The Bible says that you are not holy. You're a sinner. You are guilty of the kind of thing that these people were guilty of, just like I am. Phony, hypocritical religion. Disregard for God's commandments. Going through the ritual. Trusting in cliches. This is us. And the Bible says the only way that you can be made right with God is by trusting in what Jesus did for you on the cross. He died for your sin. He died to satisfy the wrath of God that should have fallen on you, that should have fallen on me. Believe that message. If you have never believed it, believe it. You may have nodded your head to it and filled in a million sermon outline blanks in your life and it was just going through the motions. It was all external. Believe it, that it's true. The Bible says you'll be saved. One last thought as we close. I want you to think about Jeremiah's audience. I know I've said this three, four, five times this morning. I'm gonna say it one more time. Jeremiah preached to people who were participating in temple worship. 
These were not people who had completely walked away from the Lord. These were not people who were totally devoted to Ishtar or Baal or whatever other God. These were not people who had decided to be atheists, that they didn't believe in God anymore. These were people going to the temple, the temple of the Lord, Yahweh, presumably to worship him. These were church-going folk. That's who Jeremiah preached to. He didn't go through the streets of Jerusalem knocking on doors to see who was skipping the Sabbath worship and preach to those people. He preached to the people who were going to worship the Lord. Here's the lesson, and it's really important. Reformation always begins with the people of God. Reformation must start with the people of God. I've pulled this from a quote from Phil Riken. I couldn't put the whole quote on your notes, but I want to read you the extended passage. He says, Reformation always begins with the people of God. Reformation is something that starts in the church. It begins when God's people are convicted of their sins and turn to God with new repentance, trust in God with new faith, and walk with God in new obedience. That kind of spiritual reformation always has an influence on the city, the society, or the civilization, but it always starts in the hearts of God's people. I'm no different than you. I turn on the news and see what's happening in the world and I'm one part confused and one part heartbroken and one part outraged and one part wishing can we just go back to the way things used to be at some point in the past. I I wrestle with those same thoughts that I imagine many of you do. I I look around at the world and I see evil being institutionalized in so many different ways. And I, I, I face the same temptation that you do, and that's the temptation to sit in this room and to look out there and to say, those people are the problem. They need to get their act together. The world needs reformation. The world needs revival. That wasn't who Jeremiah preached this message to. He preached it to God's people preached it to people like you. What Jeremiah understood is that true reformation must begin here before it happens out there. New repentance, new faith, new resolve to be obedient. We can't expect the world to do those things if we aren't willing to do them ourselves. That's where true change happens. Should we care about institutionalized evil and laws and governments and policies, all the rest? Absolutely. But if you want true revival, true repentance, true reformation, it starts with us, and then it moves out. You know, in Jeremiah's day, virtually no one listened. Almost no one listened to what he had to say. Will people listen today? Will we be any different than they were? Or will we just be comfortable in our phony, hypocritical religions?